0: At Alliance Theological Seminary, God has really met me.
1: And I've truly began to know my Father more intimately each and every day.
2: Initially, I'm a very goal-oriented person, personally driven. But here, God has taught me the importance of surrender. And here, it's more like, what. Does God want for me? I know what I want for myself.
0: There was a lot of spiritual baggage that I carried over from my previous background, and I was living in a lot of bondage and shame, Um, and the classes at ATS really helped me unpack that.
2: God has impacted my life by letting me understand the need to really develop an intimate relationship with Him. Coming to ATS where there's so much diversity in the faculty and the students, really expanded my own experience as well.
1: Coming to ATS, I really have seen how big this world is.
2: This university has exposed me to people from different cultures and backgrounds and even different denominations.
1: It just began to shape my own theology in a way that I feel confident that I can stand on my own two feet.
2: I. I feel a strong call into chaplaincy. I've had a lot of experiences at ATS where that calling's been confirmed, especially in my experience with field education, where I was able to intern at the Bowery Mission, which is a homeless shelter.
1: By the time I get to the end of uh, my seminary um, degree and, and receive my Master's in Divinity, I truly feel God could call me anywhere.
0: Alliance Theological Seminary has really given me the foundation to be able to have good conversations.
1: There is freedom to ask the why questions.
0: In freedom, I can lead others and help others through freedom.
1: And this is something I can take to the
2: world and equip the next generation to do what God has called them to do.
0: Well, good morning, ACAC. It's good to be home. Some of you know I was born and raised in Western PA, and so you can take the boy out of Western PA, but you can't take the Western PA out of the boy. Go Steelers. So. But uh, that said, I'm, I'm your missionary to New York City, so I bring you greetings from Alliance University and Alliance Theological Seminary. Our president, Rajan Matthews, asked me to greet you on his behalf. He's sorry he couldn't be with us this weekend and we are so grateful for the partnership we have with with uh, ACAC. So, uh, Pastor, thank you so much for inviting us. Thank you, ACAC, for your hospitality. hospitality. <laughs> and how about those kids, man? So, uh, also with us this weekend is the dean of our school of music. Peter, would you stand up and say hello? Now, if he looks intelligent, it's because he's a graduate of Duquesne and he spent some time in Pittsburgh. So... So anyhow, and, and what you experienced this morning is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of our music program. It's just a phenomenal program right in the heart of New York City. Um, you need to know we've got a, a full D2 sports program, a dorm in Jersey City, and uh, if you're interested in a college in the near future where your kids are, make sure you stop in the back. Uh, Leslie Millard is back there at a table. I, I know some. there is Leslie right there. And I know sometimes you go out different exits, but see to it that you go back that way. I think he's even got some free giveaways for you uh, that you can take home with you. Uh, How many of you know that what COVID meant for evil, God meant for good? He redeemed it. And one of the things we had to do when we pivoted is we had to get live stream cameras and we had to outfit our classrooms with sound equipment. And now it is possible to take classes uh, through live stream right from the heart of New York City. You can be in the comfort of your own home. And so some of you have contemplated going to seminary. Uh, We have a lot of lay people that are in our classes uh, growing in their theological and biblical knowledge, their spiritual formation knowledge. And so if you're interested, also keep in mind that you're an Alliance church and you can go with a 50% scholarship, all of you. And uh, all we need is a pastoral reference and uh, you can see Leslie and get more information about that. So thank you for having us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence this morning, we thank you that you inhabit the praise of your people, and we have lifted up and exalted the name of our God, the Lord Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, we welcome you, and we thank you now for what you're going to do through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. At the Winter Olympics in 1980, there was a young, inexperienced USA men's hockey team That hockey team was made up of mostly college amateurs. They didn't allow the pros to play back in that day. And they were up against the USSR four-time gold medal winning team in the medal round. And nobody gave the kids from the U.S. a chance. But when they got to the end of the third period, the United States hockey team was up 4-3 to over the Soviet Union. And the announcer for that game was going crazy as the clock ticked down to the end of the game. And Al Michaels from ABC was the sportscaster. And he started to yell, do you believe in miracles? Do you believe in miracles? Sports Illustrated coined the term miracle on ice for that moment. And in 1999, that was named the number one sports moment of the 20th century. It was an amazing moment. And so I ask you the question, do you believe in miracles? The surveys tell us that 60% of the American population believe the Bible is the word of God. But when you drill down, you find out that they don't really believe what the Bible says. That they don't have a supernatural worldview. And in fact, even some Christians have struggled with a supernatural worldview. And so I think we need to look at what does the scripture say about this topic of miracles and a miracle working God. We read in Job chapter 5 and again in Job chapter 9 that God performs wonders that cannot be fathomed and miracles that cannot be counted. That's who he is. And the psalmist joins in in Psalm 77 and says, you are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. And so the scripture is clear that our God is a miracle working God and he is immutable. He does not change. Then we move to the New Testament and Peter declares at Pentecost, fellow Israelites, listen to this, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to God by God, to you, by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. And he was speaking to people that weren't necessarily followers of Jesus, but they had seen and witnessed with their own eyes that our God is a miracle-working God, and Jesus was a miracle-working Savior. And then Jesus declared that his church, his disciples, were going to follow suit. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And so we have to ask the question, what qualifies as a miracle? Now, as much as I love that moment, you know, in the 1980 Olympics, I'm not sure it qualifies as a miracle. I've been reading uh, some stuff by Dr. Craig Keener. He's a New Testament scholar. He's written a wonderful book called Miracles Today. Arguing soundly, theologically, that we should be a people that expect our God to do the miraculous. And so, what qualifies as a miracle? In his book, he distinguishes between healing and miracles this way. Healing can be defined as an act whereby God cures illness and restores health for his glory. The gifts of healing speed up the process of healing in a sick person. And so what would qualify as a healing is when Peter, Peter's mother-in-law had a fever in Mark chapter 1, and Jesus healed her. Now, her own body's defense system may have fought that fever off in three or four days, but Jesus speeds up that process and heals her instantly. Now, miracles, on the other hand, are an act whereby God performs a powerful act that alters the ordinary course of nature, even to the point of suspending the laws of nature. Acts like raising the dead, walking on water, plagues on Egypt... Elijah's fire from heaven, or creating a limb or an appendage that is gone, shriveled, or deformed. And so those moments in your life where God steps in and does what only God can do, that's a miracle. He alters the course of human existence. He, he suspends the laws of nature, and he does what only God can do. Now the problem we face this morning is this. We all have to admit that none of us have the power to do miracles. I mean, God can use people, but in the end, it's God that is the miracle worker. He is a miracle working God. Jesus is a miracle working Savior. And he has called us to participate in that supernatural power. And so God has called us. But how do we do that? Um, And so what I want to ask this morning is this. Are there ways that we can position ourselves better to allow God to step in and do what only God can do? Is it possible that we can create an atmosphere where God can step in and do the miracle that we need. And so how do we contend for a miracle? This morning, I'm going to look at a passage in Mark chapter 3, and there's a short story of Jesus performing a miracle. He's in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he finds a man there with a shriveled hand. Now, please understand, this is not just a paralyzed hand. This is a hand, uh, the text is clear, that has been shriveled up, withered up, and it's permanently deformed. We need more than a healing here. We need a a creative miracle. And also, in the context of this passage, keep in mind that Jesus' ministry had already drawn the attention of the religious leaders. And they're not happy. They're trying to accuse him. They're trying to find a way to trick him. And ultimately, at the end of the passage, they begin to plot for his murder. And so, look with me at Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue. And a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. And his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. This morning I want to point out six principles that I think we can learn from the way Jesus responds in this moment, from the way the man with the withered, shriveled hand responds. Six principles that will help us create an atmosphere for the miraculous in our lives. And the first one is this. Don't let your fear hold you back. Don't let your fear hold you back. In verse 3, Jesus says to this man, stand up in front of everyone. Now, the last thing a person with a disability wants to be is the center of attention. And especially in this culture where if you had a shriveled hand, if you had something wrong with you, uh, people thought maybe there was sin in your life or there was sin in your parents' life or there was generational or family sin. And so this man was used to hiding. And now Jesus says, stand up in front of everyone, and as he does so, then Jesus begins to have a dialogue with the religious leaders. And I can just imagine this guy standing there, and he's thinking, "Uh, Jesus, could we get on with whatever you're doing here? Uh, Because I'd like to get back to my corner as quickly as possible to hide what is left of my dignity and my shriveled hand. But he doesn't do that. He stands where Jesus asks him to stand, and friends, sometimes the greatest act of faith in your life is to stand when everybody else is sitting. And sometimes that's all that God asks us to do, get beyond your fear, get beyond what the enemy is trying to do to hold you back, and you stand when Jesus calls you to stand. This man overcame his fear, and he stood up in front of everyone, and the miracle came. Years ago, when I was just a young pastor, I went with a team of people to Redding, California, and we planted a church. And and God blessed, and we started to grow, and we had about 80 or 90 people in our small, you know, a little cluster of, of, of people. And, and we knew God was going to bless. God was going to cause us to grow. And we were meeting in a warehouse. And so by an act of faith, we ordered 400 chairs. We only had 80 people, but we, we believed God was going to fill those chairs. So we ordered 400 chairs. And I was at the church, the warehouse, when the chairs came. It was a Friday afternoon. They unloaded the chairs. And then the driver handed me an invoice. And the invoice was for $20,000. Yeah, These chairs are expensive. And I went into the office, and I looked at our checkbook, and I realized we had less than $1,000 in our account. And I called the lead pastor, and I said, "Uh, Terry, the bill is for uh, $20,000, and we only have $1,000 in the checking account. He said, listen, God told us to order it. God will provide. Write the check. And my first thought was, I'm going to jail. (laughs) Because that check was going to bounce as high as a basketball on Monday. And he said, have a little faith, get beyond your fear, write the check. Now, I need to say, I have never done this before or since. And Pastor Allen does not want you bouncing your tithe checks, okay? So this is not what the sermon is about. But in that moment, God was trying to teach a young pastor how to get beyond his fear and trust him. Well, I wrote the check. The chairs were in the sanctuary, the warehouse when the people came on Sunday. I asked people how they liked the chairs. They cheered. They clapped. Then we prayed over those chairs and for the people that God would bring in. And then I said, friends, now we need to take an offering and pay for these chairs. And that little group of 80, 90 people took up an offering. We took up an offering and we got over $20,000. God stepped in and did what only God could do. And so we got beyond our fears. The second thing we see in this passage is this. If we're going to position ourselves to experience the miraculous, we got to get beyond the status quo. We have to get out of our religious routine, and we have to make space for God. Now, Jesus does this by showing that he is not going to be bound by the religious rules and regulations and routine that are not God-made but man-made. And they didn't even want him to heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus breaks out of their routine, and the miracle came. And, and friends, worse than that, these guys that were blinded by the routine missed a miracle and ultimately began to try to kill the miracle worker. And so when you are positioning yourself to receive what God has for you, what only God can do, you got to get out of the routine. There was a season in our life when one of our kids was going through a major crisis. And uh, if you've had teenagers, you know that's when you learn to pray. And uh, we were praying like crazy. and, And it was one of those moments when 15 minutes of devotion just won't cut it. And we were praying, and we were fasting, and we called all the, the people at church that called them prophetic intercessors, the people that you usually don't like to hang out with because they're a little strange. But we needed people that knew how to hang on to the horns of the altar. And we prayed, and we fasted, and we went for I can remember falling asleep at night praying with my wife, and God met us, but we had to break out of the religious routine. And so when you're making space for God in your life, and that's one of the best definitions for spiritual disciplines, is to make space for God. And you have to break out of that religious routine, the status quo, and allow God to come in and do what only he can do. Third principle I see in this passage is this. We've got to learn to ignore the mockers. We've got to learn to ignore the mockers. In verse 5, it says that he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He ended his dialogue with them. He, He discontinued the argument because he knew they wouldn't be convinced, and he spoke to the man. And he didn't address them again. He ignored them and spoke to the man with the shriveled hand. Now, please understand how hard this was. Because these were the guys with all the power. They were the ones in charge of the system. They had all the authority. And he ignored them, and he went straight to the man that needed the miracle. There are generally going to be two groups of people in your life. There's going to be people of faith, and there's going to be people that mock faith. And even in the body of Christ, there are people that are so earthbound they don't realize that faith is the currency of heaven we get to spend on earth. And so when you see people like that, you've got to look past them. You've got to look to God, keep your eyes on Him, and you've got to ignore the mockers and begin to believe that God wants to come through for you. A few years ago, there was a young pastoral couple in California at a church that I'm familiar with, and they suffered a terrible tragedy. Their daughter, Uh, had a medical crisis in the middle of the night. They rushed her to the hospital and she was pronounced dead at the hospital. And that couple uh, asked the hospital to keep their daughter's daughter's body in the morgue, not to do an autopsy right away. They were gonna rally their church. They were gonna pray for a resurrection. I know that's outside the norm, but they, they really believe that God is able. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And they didn't do anything weird. They didn't take the body to the church. They left it in the care of the hospital, but they called their church members together. And by the end of the day, that church was filled with people who were worshiping and praying and asking God to move on their behalf. Friends, I'm sad to say they didn't get their miracle, but I was so proud of them for contending, for allowing God the space to step in and do what only he could do. But what I was surprised at in that season was how much mocking they received, not from the world, but from the body of Christ. Church people mocking them. Again, Friends, I know that we have got to make space for God to do what only God can do. And we've got to ignore the mockers, and we've got to look to people of faith. Well, the next thing I see in this passage, the fifth thing, is this. We have to remember to do whatever, the fourth thing, do whatever Jesus tells us to do. Do whatever Jesus tells us to do. In verse 5, Jesus spoke to this man, and he said, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And the hand was completely restored. Now keep in mind the context. This man with a disability was already the center of attention. He didn't want to be the center of attention. And now Jesus says to him, take that thing you've been hiding, the thing that has filled you with shame, and stretch it out for everyone to see. And I imagine what went through his mind is, Jesus, I'm already standing here in front of everyone, and now you're asking me to expose myself, what I've been ashamed of, what I've hidden my whole life. But you know what? The man does what Jesus tells him to do, and when he does so, he gets his miracle. Friends, when we're contending for a miracle and we get a word from the Lord, or God highlights something from Scripture that Jesus is telling us to do and obey, we got to do it. And sometimes Jesus will ask you to do some interesting things. You know, for instance, in John chapter 2, when he turns the water into wine, you remember his mother Mary turned to the servants and said, do whatever he tells you to do and what he told them to do was no small feat because he asked them to fill six stone jars full to the brim with 30 gallons of water now do you know how much 30 gallons of water weighs 250 pounds and I can just see those servants whether they were filling the jars with wineskins, but they're schlepping back and forth carrying all the weight of that water thinking this is the stupidest thing we've ever done we don't need water we need wine But they made space for Jesus to do what only Jesus can do. And the miracle took place. So when we are in that place, we've got to listen to what Jesus calls us to. There was another time my daughter was away at college. And we got a call from the school that they didn't know where she was. And they feared that she was in danger. And they said, you need to come right away. It was 9 o'clock at night and we had to drive 7 hours to get there. And, And how many of you know when your kids are in danger, there's a lot of fear. And as I got in the car and we turned on some worship music, the first song that came on was There is Power in the Name of Jesus to break every chain, to break every chain. And I felt the Lord say, you sing that song over your daughter the whole way there. And for seven hours, we put that song on repeat. And by the time we got there, I was hoarse. But you know what? We got our miracle. We got our daughter back. She was fine. But when Jesus tells you to do something, you do it and you don't hold back. Well, the fifth thing, I see in this passage is this, expect resistance. When you start making space for God, you need to know the enemy is not going to back off. He's going to attack. And we see in this passage that the text tells us that the Pharisees move from plotting to accuse Jesus, just religious manipulation, to almost a spirit of murder that comes. And I I see this as a moment where we're witnessing the demonic nature of resistance against Jesus. You see, every time the kingdom of God begins to advance, the kingdom of darkness is going to try to fight back. There's always going to be a counterattack. And so when you're positioning yourself for God to step into your life and do what only God can do, you need to know the enemy's not going to lay back. He's going to come after you. A few years ago, I was invited to a Southern Baptist church in Edmond, Oklahoma. Henderson Hills Baptist Church. And this is a Southern Baptist church that believes in healing. And they had me come out and do a seminar on healing for their elders and their leaders. And three months after I was there, I got a call from the pastor. And this was President Mike Scales' former church when he lived out there. And and, uh, the pastor called me and said, Ron, would you and Mike come and bring a ministry team? Uh, I'm not sure if you know what's been happening, but my wife has been unable to eat or digest food for the last two months. And she's down to 80 pounds, and the doctors don't know what's causing it. They can give her no help, and uh, we need you to come. And so Mike Scales and I flew out to Edmond, Oklahoma. We took a ministry team, and we started ministering to this woman one afternoon. And it occurred to me to ask her, when did this symptom start? When did this issue come about? And she told us that it was when she was caring for her father in the last days of his life. And she explained to us that her father was a very legalistic, fundamentalist uh, minister, and he was deeply disappointed in his daughter that she had married a liberal Southern Baptist pastor. Now, there was nothing liberal about this church. It was great. Uh, But her father, you know, just had tunnel vision as to what was Christianity and what was not. And he was also deeply disappointed in his two sons, who also were Southern Baptist pastors. And near the end of his life, he wrote a seven-page letter expressing his disappointment and anger at his children. And the letter was essentially a curse against his daughter and his two sons. And he gave the letter to his daughter and said, I want this read at my funeral. And when she read that letter, she said, my brothers will never hear this letter. I will bear it alone. Well, that's when her symptoms started, right after that event. And so I said, do you still have that letter? She said, yes, it's in my dresser drawer. I said, go get it, because we're going to shred that thing, and we're going to break off those curses spoken against you and your brothers. And so we got a paper shredder, and we got a, a waste can, and she took that first letter and said, in Jesus' name, I, I throw off these lies, I break these curses, and she shred the first page. And then she shred the second page, and then she shredded the third page. And as she was shredding the third page, this paper shredder burst into flames. Now, you might think it's a coincidence, but we, we were doing some serious spiritual warfare in that moment. I picked up the can and went to the patio. Mike scales, his eyes were this wide. I don't think he'd ever seen anything like this. And and as I went out to the patio with this burning garbage can, she came after me just ripping up the pages and throwing them into the fire. Well, you know what happened? She was able to eat and digest food that week. She was completely restored to her full weight. But you need to know we had to fight for that miracle. There was some resistance because the enemy is not going to happen when God steps into your life and does what only God can do. And so know that spiritual warfare is often involved when we're doing this. Well, finally, the sixth principle I see is this. You have to trust him. You have to trust him. You see, Jesus is good and he loves you and he knows you better than you know yourself. He knows when you need a miracle and he knows when you don't. Even when you think, if I don't have a miracle right now, I, I can't go on. Jesus knows and you can trust him. He is the exact representation of his father in heaven and he loves you. I want to remind you of Job. You know, Job lost everything he had. He lost his money, he lost his family, and when you get to the middle of that book, you see him finally learn the lesson, and I picture him kneeling before God with his hands outstretched, and he makes this statement, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And at that moment, the miraculous restoration of his life began. You see, God wants to get you and I to that place where we put our trust in him, We put our eyes on him. We're not letting our circumstances rob us. We are fixing our eyes on Jesus, and we can trust him. And so these are the principles. Go ahead and put them up one last time. Don't let your fear hold you back. Break free from the status quo. Get out of that religious routine. Make space for God. Ignore the mockers. Get around people of faith that will join you in prayer. Do whatever Jesus tells you to do. Expect some resistance and trust him. Here's what I want us to do this morning. Where do you need a miracle in your life right now? Where do you need God to step in and do what only God can do? Maybe it's a son or a daughter. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe there's some things going on at work that are just impossible. You need to know, I wrote this sermon in January for me. I I hope you got something out of it, but it's for me. Because it's a tough time in Christian higher education. And Alliance University and Alliance Theological Seminary, we need God to step in and do what only God can do. But so do you. And so if you're here today and you're saying, you know what, I want to join you, would you just stand up right where you're at? Just stand up. And by standing, you're in essence saying, God, I want to position myself, I want to create an atmosphere in my life where you can step in, you can do the unexplainable, you can do the unexpected, you can touch my son, my daughter, you can touch my family members, you can fix that situation at work that is unfixable. God, you are the God of provision, and so we stand in front of you. The next question to you is this. What's your withered hand right now? What's that thing in your life that maybe you've been hiding, maybe you're ashamed of it? And Jesus is saying, stretch out your hand. So put whatever it is in your hand and stretch it out to him. Just stretch it out to him. Right now, this morning. That's right. Wish you could just see the picture of what I'm seeing. I'm seeing people that are desperately in need of God stepping in, and you've got that hand stretched out. And so, Lord Jesus, we cry out. We thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You have not changed. You are still our healer. You are still our deliverer. You are still our miracle-working Savior. So we invite you, come, Holy Spirit. Come and step into those situations. Come and heal those withered hands, those shriveled hands. Come and heal those situations that are impossible. Come, Holy Spirit, and move at Alliance University, at Alliance Theological Seminary. I stand and I stretch out my hand and I say, Jesus, touch us. Do in us what only you can do. Step in, God. And we ask this in the holy, righteous name of Jesus. Amen. Let's worship you.